Today is part two in our sermon series entitled Turning Points. Our scripture lesson today is about a turning point in the life of Moses. So listen for how the conversation between God and Moses unfolds from Exodus chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. God said further, I am the God your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard the cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Moses was in a heap of trouble. If you went into the post office in Egypt, you would have seen an FBI poster with Moses' mugshot on it, Most Wanted. Moses was a fugitive because Moses killed an Egyptian for physically assaulting a Hebrew slave. And, and that's how Moses ends up as a shepherd. He's, he's really, well, he's in the witness protection program. He moves to the countryside to tend sheep for his father-in-law in order to evade notice of the Egyptian authorities who never, ever, ever like it when the apple cart between slave masters and slaves is upset. Well, all of that happens in chapter 2, and this morning we just read from chapter 3 in Exodus, and we heard what happened when Moses was out tending sheep one day. And it starts out like it's a simple, beautiful little hike, or maybe just checking on the sheep for a little bit. But actually, Moses' inner life is raging in turmoil. He's afraid. He's worried. What will become of him? He's a fugitive. What will become of his people that he left behind in Egypt? Still slaves, the Hebrew people working 
under a, such an oppressive regime. You see, Moses himself was raised as an Egyptian child, but he knows that he is actually a Hebrew person. And so Moses took empathy upon the Hebrew slaves, and, and one day he could no longer bear to see them abused the way that they were. So Moses dared to turn aside and look at their pain and intervene. This makes Moses a prime candidate for God to tap on his shoulder and summon him to rescue even more slaves who are suffering. In fact, what God is ask, asking of Moses is what we would call today systemic change, to lead not just one slave out of bondage, but to lead all the slaves out of bondage, to part the Red Sea, and to lead them into a land of freedom where they can experience peace and promise and prosperity. But all of that would involve Moses taking a huge risk. It would involve him as a fugitive going back to the place where he is most wanted and facing the leader, the Pharaoh, eye to eye, and who knows what could happen if he did that. So Moses is tending his flocks, and he's letting all of that roll around in his mind when he sees out of the corner of his eye a bush burning but not consumed. Moses turns and looks, and just as he turns and looks at the oppression of the people in Egypt, he turns and looks at that bush, and it is when he looks that we hear the voice of God, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, I'm here, here, I'm here, pick me. But when God gives the assignment to Moses, Moses, go back to Egypt, stand up to Pharaoh, deliver your people into freedom. Moses says, who am I, who am I, who am I? You can just see him backing away from that bush. You see, God has seen what Moses has seen that the people are suffering. And God has this idea that together, Moses and God can bring about a different kind of world, a world of justice and mercy, a world of peace and freedom, a world where people are treated fairly and respected with love. One writer put it this way, God chooses not to remain safe and secure in some heavenly abode, untouched by the sorrow of the world. God sees their suffering. And more importantly, God sees that Moses sees, which makes Moses a prime candidate to have God tap on his shoulder and say, come, rescue the people. Now, maybe you can relate to Moses's ambivalence. I, I can. We all have times in our lives when we raise our hand and say, I'll do it, pick me, here I am. And we all have moments when we find ourselves backing away from that burning bush saying, mm -mm, not me, I am completely unqualified to fix that messy problem. In season 18 of Grey's Anatomy, there is a surgical resident named Joe who is wrestling with inner turmoil. She herself was given up for adoption, and she spent 
a horrific number of years in the foster system, and she eventually spent her teenage years living out of her car, then she goes to college and med school, and now she's a surgical resident, and in comes a woman who's in a high-risk pregnancy. She has the baby, but the mother doesn't make it, and there is no father. And now Joe has a moment. What will she do? Will she let them whisk away that child and take her into the foster system that Joe grew up in, or will she adopt the child. We all have those moments when we have to decide if we're going to say, here I am, pick me, or if we're going to say, who am I, and back away. There are so many issues that vie for our attention these days, issues of justice and freedom, and we sometimes wonder, well, what can one church really do? And what can one person really do? How can I get involved in one more thing. Should I be one of those people who is advocating for voting rights? Should I be one of those people that's helping to welcome refugees seeking political asylum to Kansas City? I remember one night, it was maybe four to six weeks after the death of George Floyd. I was sitting in my backyard with a group of other women around the patio table, and we were each talking about what next? We, we were talking about the racism that we had observed in our own lives, racism that we had been a part of in our own personal journeys. And we were also beginning to brainstorm, what could one person do? What could each of us do? What might we do as a group when one of my friends said, hold it right there. I am already spending my free time advocating for teens with mental health challenges. And I am already spending a lot of my extra time volunteering with organizations both locally and nationally working on environmental issues. And she said, I can't take on one more thing. I was so relieved when she said that. It was so honest because none of us is called to save the world. How much suffering can one person wade into how do we decide when to turn aside and look at that burning bush like Moses did? How do we decide? Well, I learned something new this week. I learned that the ancient Midrash, which is what the rabbis wrote about the biblical stories over the years, that when they talked about this story of Moses and the burning bush, the rabbis would call it in their stories a thorn bush. And the Greek translation of this story calls it a thorn bush. And at least one, or one modern English translation of the Bible in the book of Acts refers to this story about Moses and the burning bush as the time when Moses encountered the burning thorn bush. Last week, we talked about Abraham's called to follow God, and it came to him while he stood underneath an oak tree, a tall, strong, shade tree, a powerful, solid tree. But Moses gets called from a bush, maybe a thorn bush, just a bramble on the ground. Well, there's another hint in the Bible about why this might have been a thorn bush. It comes in the book of Judges, a couple of books after this one, and it's a little parable about trees, and the trees are all trying to decide which tree will be the king to rule all the other trees. 
The olive tree is a good candidate because olive oil is produced by that tree and it's so essential for life. And the fig tree is a good candidate because it produces such sweet, delicious fruit. But in the end, in the parable, the one that becomes the king to rule over all the other trees is the bramble. The bramble, it's nothing more than a scrub brush, a thistle, a thorn bush. So it makes sense that many religious folk along the way saw this burning bush, the one that was aflame, the one through whom God spoke, was actually a thorn bush. God chooses the lowly one, the thorn bush. God chooses the lowly slaves in Egypt. God chooses Moses, who is completely inadequate, completely reluctant. God looks at Moses, and he sees that Moses risked his own life to save one slave, and he decides that this Moses is a prime candidate to wage a full-scale rebellion against Egypt. Well, we can't know exactly what kind of bush it was that was a flame that Moses had an experience with, but we know for sure from reading the rest of the story that Moses himself is in an extremely thorny situation, and it is in the midst of that thorny situation God speaks. About 100 years ago, there was a psychology professor who found himself in a very thorny situation. Not as dramatic as Moses, but still he was wrestling. This professor was on a hike in New Hampshire, going through the forest, not so much to get exercise, not even to see the beautiful scenery. He needed time to think. He was brooding. He was frustrated by his own inability to make up his life a success. He was overcome because he had tried various career paths. He had tried being a farmer. He had tried being a teacher, but he was just always frustrated, always disappointed, because deep down he knew what he most wanted to do in life was to be a poet. But here he was, 38 years old. He had never published one poem. He had never sold one poem. So on this walk in the wood hills of New Hampshire, he sat down on an old logging road and he rested. While he rested in the distance, he saw a figure walking towards him. It startled him because he hiked in this area a lot and he had never seen another human being in this part of the woods. He noticed that the man was approaching him and that the man was dressed almost identical to how he was dressed. And when the man got very close to him, he paused and he looked at a fork in the road and he studied both directions and he turned and he took away deep back into the woods. The psychology professor went back to New Hampshire. He resigned his teaching position at the college. He packed up his family and he moved to England and he began to write poetry. His poems became popular both with the British and with the Americans. One of his most popular poems was autobiographical. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I 
I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Where would we be today without the poetry of Robert Frost? Though we all dread the thorny moments that come to us in life, there are times when in the midst of the thorny moments, a burning bush appears and we hear some kind of clarity, maybe even the voice of God. For Moses, that voice led to a wild turn that changed not only the trajectory of his life, but it changed the course of history. On May 3, 1981, Carrie Leitner, who was 13 years old, had her picture taken in her softball uniform. Carrie was a rising star on her softball team. After they had their pictures taken, Carrie and her friend were walking in their neighborhood to the church carnival when a drunk driver struck Carrie and she died. She, the driver had only been out of jail two days following his fourth conviction for drunk driving. No parent can imagine anything worse. Carrie's mom, Candace, carried her daughter's picture in the softball uniform, taken just hours before the accident. She carried that picture with her wherever she went. She carried it from their home in California to the press conference in Washington, D.C. She carried it to the candlelight vigils that she had with other moms. She carried it to marches. She blew it up, and she put it on picket signs at rallies, and that is how MAD was born, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Those moms got President Reagan's attention, and he worked on legislation to get $125 million in grants to states that would change their laws to protect little girls like Carrie. Carrie's mom put her grief into action, and MAD estimates that some 400,000 lives have been saved in this country since we woke up to the fact that drunk driving kills. All of us long for a simple, beautiful, pain-free path through this human life. But many of us face tragic moments like Carrie Leitner's mom when pain simply comes at us like an avalanche. And many of us face those Robert Frost moments, the fork in the road, where we long for a beautiful and meaningful life and we are not sure where to go. What does God say in these turning points? God says, I will go with you. God says, I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard your cry. I know your suffering. I hear your reluctance to create a more just world. But here, here's what I will do. I will go with you. I will go with you. Turning points are not typically easy. If they are for you, fantastic. For me, they are often difficult. One of the hardest questions I ever answer, and I get asked this question a lot, is, how did you decide to become a minister? Well, I never know how to answer. Because if I say, oh, it was God, 
Well, that just sounds flippant. And if I say, well, it actually took about 10 years of discernment, then I see your face glaze over like, well, I don't have time for a story that long. But when I am pushed, and I am completely honest, I always picture a day towards the end of the summer in Houston, Texas. I was just completing my second summer in a row as an intern at a church in Houston. On that day, I was completely exhausted and frustrated and hurt and angry and defeated. Prior to that moment, I kind of thought the youth group was going pretty well. I, I thought maybe I even had the gifts for the making of a minister. I, I thought I had learned in those two summers in Houston, Texas, that ministers are just ordinary people and I was an ordinary person, so maybe I could be a minister. But I was still wondering in the back of my mind if I should go into ministry or stay the course of the path I was on as a journalist. On this day, when I felt like I was in a completely thorny situation, it was a combination of things. The kids in the youth group were rebelling. My support system back home was pushing me away from ministry. My work at the church those two summers on that day felt like a complete and total failure. And I sat down on the steps in the borrowed home where I was house-sitting, not at the top of the steps, not at the bottom of the steps, but halfway up in the middle of the steps, symbolic of my stuck point. And I wept. I just wanted to quit. But when I stood up, I knew that something had arisen inside of me, and I knew that God was with me.